Almost every reenactor has their own horror stories about buying uniforms online. So if you're tired of taking a shot in the dark and want the real lowdown on just how good or bad Chinese-made reproductions really can be, this next episode of The Reenactor's Corner is one for you. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. This is Chris here again with Ben. Hello. It's nice to be back. Good to have you back. Um, Nice to talk to you again. I'm excited for our topic today. Today, we are going to talk about buying reenactment kit items, the process of doing that. So this isn't going to be about choosing what kind of kit that you need for your impression, which could be a subject for a whole other podcast series. We're instead going to talk about um, how to buy stuff when you already know what you need. Either you've figured out what items you need for your impression, or you've just decided that you want to buy a particular cap or jacket for whatever reason. How do you go about doing that? Well, I mean, when I joined the hobby, um, I joined a unit, and they gave me uh, like a one, like a sort of one-stop shop vendor to buy everything from. And this vendor had sort of a wide array of uh, uniforms that you get nearly everything from. I had to order the boots from another vendor, but that's like a separate story. But uh, yeah, I I remember the uniform actually didn't really fit me properly because it was a Gavin. And while Gavin uniforms are good, their off-the-rack uniforms are typically best for somebody who's maybe around 5'6", um, and I am 6'1", and so it did not really fit my uh, long fellow, if you will. Sure. Um I think it's important to point out for people listening to this who aren't familiar with all the jargon, we're going to be probably dropping a lot of names of manufacturers and vendors here. So um, Gavin being a manufacturer based in China, they make custom uniforms. They also make an off the rack range of sizes of uniforms that are available from a variety of different vendors all over the world, I think. Yeah. so yeah. that's kind of an interesting cautionary tale where you were basically told by your unit, in this case mistakenly, to get something that, that wasn't even going to fit. Yeah, exactly. And like, I didn't actually know how the Felbluza was supposed to fit back then. Like, I thought it was supposed to be skin tight, um, which I later regretted. And like, the sleeves were too short, but I also realized in retrospect, the body was too short too. And the real things were made, you know, in a in a wide range of sizes, as Chris, you know, from your original collection and uh, that I've learned over the years. But I did not know that then as a new reenactor. We're already kind of getting into a sort of a, a pitfall here because I would generally encourage people to inquire with their reenactment group about where to buy the yeah. stuff. And what you're describing is an example of how that can kind of go wrong. Well, I mean, I have to say this might have been a fault of the group. Um, like they had this sort of odd rule where if you were over the age of t- if you were over the age of 25, you could wear any like any like uniform item from all of World War II. So you could show up with like an M36 tunic and like either stone gray or field gray straight leg trousers. 
and an M34 kit. But if you were under the age of 20, uh, 25, you had to purchase all M43 everything. And that was like an arbitrary thing that they did for uniformity. But I think a lot of people abused that. Sure. Um, and so, you know, different groups have different ways of doing things. And I feel like some are a bit more refined than others or sort of less uh, easy to abuse than others. Well, I also will point out, Ben, that when you got started in reenacting years ago, when you bought this uniform, uh, the Gavin uniforms were relatively new on the market. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you saw them emerge on the scene, Chris. Actually, we can maybe talk about the the sort of trends in, you know, the these different waves of brands as they came on the market. Um, but of course, I didn't know that at the time. And... Uh, also, back then, I really wanted to get like a like a nice custom-made uniform that cost way more money than I could afford, and uh, so that was a sort of another, um, I think, fallacy of my early days in the hobby. But, All right, well, let's let's kind of talk about some of this difference between um, a custom, so-called high-end, bespoke reproduction item that is available from a high-priced vendor yeah. that's made for you versus like an off-the-rack tunic. The obvious pro here is that theoretically, at least, the custom-made tunic would have fit you perfectly. Sure, sure. Versus the off-the-rack tunic that maybe didn't fit you really at all. Yeah, that is to say, though, and I, I will say this to everybody: you have to have a, you have to realize that these things were not meant to be skin tight, and I thought that they were, and that is not great for reenacting in any kind of cold weather. Um, and so you kind of have to, if you're ordering a custom uniform, you have to, uh, to make it sort of fit correctly, uh, maybe even like add a few inches or centimeters um, to your like chest measurements and such. The, the original standards for fit for the field blouse specified that it had to be wide in the torso so that you could fit it over your sweater and so that it didn't restrict your movements. Yeah. Um, and that yeah. can be hard. Um, the process of ordering a custom uniform that's made specifically for you, depending on which vendor you use, they might want you to give your naked body measurements, or they might want you to give the measurements that you want them to construct the garment to. And if you don't know which you're giving them, you could be in for a terrible disaster. Oh, yeah. I mean, imagine if I imagine if I did have the money as a 16-year-old to drop $800 on a tunic and I got something that was skin tight and would have maybe fit me for, you know, like a few years at most. And then, of course, my impression changed, you know, like two years later and... I would have been kind of shit out of luck, you know? Sure. So, um, even if, you know, it's another pitfall of the custom made uniform can be if you order it, if you make a mistake with your sizing yeah, and you get something that's the wrong size, it's not like, uh, most of these people are going to give you a refund. If it's your mistake, it's on you. And now yeah. you have a thing that you can't wear yeah. that was made specifically for you. Yeah. And the resale value of that thing is likely going to be a fraction of what you paid for it. Yeah, I will say that from my experience selling um, sort of reenactment garments, um, some of these tunics, they, they might cost five, six, seven, eight hundred dollars $800 stock. Um, and then you can like basically upgrade them even further with original insignia and original buttons. And some of these things might cost like a thousand dollars. And 
I have never been able to really sell one um, successfully for much more than like three hundred fifty dollars, sure. and usually lower, usually lower. Yeah. So when you're buying this thing, it's not like um, it's like buying a new car. Yeah. As soon as you get it, it's worth a fraction of what you paid for it, basically. Yeah. And you kind of just have to accept that, you know, and either wear this thing, you know, for like the rest of your life or just accept that, you know, you have this thing which like automatically costs, you know, a third of what of what you paid for it and that uh, getting rid of it, you know, you, you might be disappointed. I have to say, and this would probably come as a surprise to some people, I, in my 20 years of reenacting, have never owned a custom-tailored uniform item that was made to my sizes. Every uniform item that I have ever owned was some mass-produced off-the-rack size. Um, That's not to say I would never get a Mm custom-tailored uniform, but I have basically found, and this is kind of my subjective opinion based on studying originals and comparing different reproductions that there's kind of enough size variation from one manufacturer of a uniform to the next that you can find for most body types and most sizes, I think a stock size from one manufacturer or another that's going to fit you great. Yeah. I mean, a piece of advice I think I could have really benefited from when joining the hobby is, um, I mean, for the longest time, there were two Chinese manufacturers. There was Sturm and there was Gavin. And uh, there was also Hiki Shop, but their quality was kind of eh. Like, maybe they've improved. I haven't seen any of their new stuff. But for the longest time, the two go-tos were Sturm or Gavin. And advice that I was telling people, which I would still tell people, because I think it still holds true, is um, if you're like 5'6", get a Gavin off the rack. If you're like six feet, you know, get a Sturm off the rack. Sure, they have a longer cut. Yeah, sort of, they have the a longer cut. Uh, Sturm does, and uh, so right now the tunic that I wear for uh, you know to every event, it's a it's a Sturm, it's a Sturm M40, and I love it. I love it to death. Something that I have done is get stock size uniforms and then tailor them. Mm. Um, I did this one time where I wanted to make. A, an impression of like a better tunic or a walking out tunic. I don't really know exactly. Looking back on it, I don't really know exactly what it was that I was trying to do, but I wanted to take an M36 tunic and do some retailering in the style of how many wartime tunics were retailered by the soldiers for a snappier look. So yeah. I had it shortened. I raised the lower pockets. Um, and even more recently, I have a great coat project that I'm working on right now where I asked the seller to give me the measurements and I thought based on those measurements that it was my size. I made a mistake. It was actually a size too big. And um, even just with my rudimentary sewing machine skills, which are not advanced at all, I, I kind of took the sleeves off and made the distance from shoulder to shoulder smaller and put the sleeves back on. It fits me great now. That's cool, dude. That's really cool. So even if something doesn't fit off the rack, too small is a tough thing to fix. Sleeves that are too short, that's a tough one. But um, if it's a little too big, a little too long, these are things that can be fixed. Yeah. Um, So I circle back to an earlier point. Um, Chris, you said that you've never owned a custom-made uniform in your entire sort of tenure as a reenactor. I have owned a number over the years, um, and 
I think I've actually, I think I actually ended up selling them all. Um, usually at a loss to myself. Um, so again, like we said, do not be, expect to be able to basically get what you paid for this selling it on the used market. So um, imagine that you've bought a custom tailored uniform that is, fits just your body. Um, you've decided that the best bet for you is not to get an off the rack one, but to get something that is uh, specifically made to your measurements that you've provided. What's a reasonable wait time? What, how long do you expect is going to go by until you have that thing in your hands? Well, our joke is you receive it upon your death. (laughs) And sometimes it feels that way, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think the longest I ever waited for a uniform item was like, that I actually received was like I love that you had to you had to qualify it that way. I think like eight months, that's, eight, that's, eight nine months. You know. Yeah. Well, you had boots. I did have boots that took longer. That How took long? Over, over a year. Over a year. Yeah, over a year. I don't know the exact number of months, but it was probably between twelve and fifteen. And then they ended up not really fitting me that great. <laughs> So do you think that eight months is a reasonable wait time? No, I don't. It's tough, isn't it? It's on some level. There was a recent uh, Facebook thread that I saw where people were talking about a wait time for a custom uniform. And this person had been waiting for 15 months or something like that. And there were people on there suggesting that waiting up to two years would be reasonable. I used to be so sort of brand obsessed and uh, I, I used to want to show up wearing, you know, something that was like made in Europe with wool that was loomed in Germany and uh, like all original buttons. And it was like made by a European person. And maybe they were using like rayon thread and like real rayon lining, you know, like I was really, really, really obsessed with these, uh, with these certain qualities. Like it had to tick certain boxes, uh, in my mind to be acceptable to me. And if you're that sort of person, you might be waiting two years for a uniform. Sure. Um, for me, my perspective on this is that in two years, I might be a different size I might have changed my impression, or I might be dead. Well, it's so funny you say that, dude, because I remember, I can we can we drop uh, brand names of defunct ma- makers? Yeah, definitely. Okay, I mean there was a company called On the March, um, and uh, so to backtrack to backtrack a little bit. Uh, so when I started reenacting at the front, which is based out of Kentucky, they made their sort of own in-house uniforms called the Textled line. And, you know, it was made from like German wool, um, made in America. Um, it was something like base price of like five or $600 for uh, an M42, M43 model with the simplified lining, or for like a M36, M40, it was more. It was like 700. And you could get all original buttons. You could like send them original insignia to apply. And so I really, really, really wanted one of these things because it was like driving a Ferrari. Uh, and they every, every time I had just enough money to maybe be able to afford one of these things, they discontinued them. And so 
I found this other website called On the March, who was, which was run by somebody who apparently had worked with At the Front on their text-led lines, and their uniforms were supposedly just as good, if not better. And so at the time, I was in an SS uniform, so I, SS unit, so I ordered an SS uni, uniform from On the March. And basically, months went by and months went by, and this time period, I actually left that SS group and I joined 195. And so I changed my order from an SS cut tunic to an army tunic, which you could do. And at that time, how long had you been waiting already? I can't, it was probably over half a year, you know, and then I let like maybe another six months go by, maybe more than that, and the uniform still hadn't arrived, and so eventually I asked this this uh, this maker for my money back. After waiting probably for more than a year, yeah. almost certainly for yeah. more than a year. And fortunately, I did get it back, but that said, yeah, like, it was it was a lot of money. I think it was like eight hundred dollars, and she took like a small percentage because I asked for my money back. But I still got like seven hundred dollars back, which was, I mean, it's 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 no small amount of money. And then shortly thereafter, on the march, declared bankruptcy. Yeah, and yeah. I I'm not sure if there was anybody who was totally permanently out their money but people were very upset we had another guy in our group who also had a uniform on on order from her and um yeah he also i think got his money back eventually but uh, it it's it's disappointing um and chris i think you've seen this happen i mean we saw on the march to declare bankruptcy but you've seen several makers before that declare bankruptcy or just vanish and maybe take some people's money. I mean, I've seen this happen a number of times. It happened with um, old Lost Battalions. Lost Battalions is a company that still exists under new management. When the old manager long ago bailed, um, there were a lot of people who had spent money on uniforms. And when he basically pulled up his tent stakes and disappeared, they were left with nothing. Yeah. Um, Eric Grigsby was a military dealer. He gave up the profession years ago, but he was a reenactment supplier. Um, He sold a huge range of stuff from off the rack, uh, made in China reproduction stuff to um, made in the USA, high-end repro stuff to bespoke stuff that he would make. And when he, one day his website was gone and anyone who had an order in, which included a lot of people who had been waiting a long time for things to be manufactured, for helmets to be painted. That stuff was all gone. Mm. The helmets that had been sent in to be restored vanished, and that stuff was all just gone. And this is a pattern that I've seen a lot with um, a lot of suppliers who make stuff, where the product that they make gets a lot of hype. It's the best. Um, the demand for their product skyrockets the demand seems to overwhelm the capacity to supply lead times get longer and longer the difference between how long it really takes and how long you were told it was going to take gets greater and greater and communication becomes more and more sporadic and then they're gone i've seen it happen too before it's it's unfortunate um i 
I, I don't think I've quite been a victim of like my money disappearing or my things disappearing, but I feel like I was at risk of being a victim in the past of this. And I've known people who have been a victim of this, uh, of this process. I had sent a uniform to lost battalions to be retailered. Um, and I think I had paid for it. Mm. And then lost battalions was gone. Mm. A long time later, um, somebody else, I think the son of the original founder and owner of Lost Battalions took over sort of the the loose ends, the leftovers, and he said, if you think that there's something here that belongs to you, please message me and I'll try to get it to you. And I messaged him and he found my uniform. It had not had the alterations done. It was exactly as I had sent it, but I got it back. Mm, at least you got it back. Yeah. At least you got it back. So I guess... Uh, let's, let's, you mentioned, we've kind of talked here a little bit about a a sort of a difference or a perceived difference between made in China reproduction kit items and USA or European made reproduction kit items. I know there are a lot of people in this hobby or I don't know, people on the internet, whether they're actually in reenactment or not, I don't know, but they will turn their nose up at made in China stuff. I used to too. I used to too, despite the fact that I was wearing a Chinese uniform. I wanted to wear the bespoke uniform, and um, I actually did find a company called uh, Panther Store, um, and they were located out of the Czech Republic, and their prices for you know bespoke tailor-made stuff actually weren't that bad, and their lead time wasn't that bad. Um, and I ordered a couple of custom uniforms from them, and I was quite pleased with them, but uh, that said, I believe um, one of... Like the members of their team passed away, and ever since then, I hadn't, uh, I haven't ordered any new product from them, so I can't say how the new run stuff is. Um, I but, saw a good review just the other day from someone who had some work done on a custom project. So that's good. Yeah, that's I, good. I'm glad they're still around. I would actually, of the few sort of bespoke vendors, I would recommend Panther Store. Well, what about the Chinese stuff? Is it garbage? No. Not at all. Um, I love my Sturm tunic. I think it looks real. Um, I know, Chris, you also have a Sturm tunic. I think yours also looks, you know, really real and worn. Um, is the German wool, a li- is like the German made wool a little nicer? Maybe. Um, but that said, I feel like that it's. You know, it's it's kind of a fallacy because these bespoke reproduction uniforms are using 100% wool, and it might be a nice color match for originals, but originals, especially the wartime ones, had a really high uh, sort of viscose rayon uh, percentage in them, or an increasingly higher percentage of rayon as the war so, uh, sort of wore on, and uh, the reproductions are all made out of 100% wool. Sure. Um I think you bring up an interesting point there where your ability to evaluate something, uh, the evaluation of something and how good it is or, or not good is really subjective. I think where, um, basically like, for example, I could look at a reproduction item that is made out of materials that are obviously of the highest quality, deluxe fabrics that is, uh, painstakingly assembled with not a stitch out of place and that is built with an incredible build quality and it's going to last two lifetimes. 
And you could say, well, this is a really nice item. This is a really well-made item, a well-crafted item. And that may well be true, but it may be completely different from an original item. Sure. Whereas you might look at an original item that's made out of a shoddy material that is poorly constructed with loose stitches, you know, stitching all over the place and uh, looks like it wouldn't last more than a few months of field use. And this might be a piece of, of crap, but it, it, if that's the original. I think my mentality at the time, to sort of harken back, I wanted to get something that was actually nicer made than an original, uh, that I thought would basically last me for, you know, years and years and years of reenacting. Um, but also it was a sort of showboating thing. It was like, oh yeah, you know, like I have the real rayon lining and I have the German made wool and I have the original, uh, you know, like rayon, uh, thread and the original insignia and the original buttons. Like look at my original horn button on the inside of the tunic that nobody sees. And like... It was it was a it was a showboating thing. It was like sort of showing up to a party wearing all you know designer clothing, but I just find that's a very sort of uh, cheap way of making friends. It's funny that the more money you know, spending a ton of money to make friends is the cheap way. You know. Yeah. But you're right yeah. in a sense that. Yeah. Um, or, sorry, ultimately, it is a matter of money, right? The, well, the kind of conversations that it sort of garners you are very, very, very sur- surface level. Um, yeah, they, like, they're shallow. Yeah. Um, we, we're talking a, a little bit about uh, Chinese stuff. I wanted to point out something that um, some people have probably read that I've made this point before. But for example, when we talk about reproduction K98 ammunition pouches, which is a very key part of the field gear of basically any uh, Wehrmacht or SS rifleman impression, the best reproduction ammunition pouches come from a vendor called Coco Momo 77 on eBay, yeah. and they are made in China, and they come from China. Yep, yep. And there's, there have been, um, there have never been better reproductions of the uh, K98 pouch made for reenactors than this Chinese-made product. There certainly are instances where your best bet is going to go with something made in China. So I think that just dismissing... Chinese-made reproductions out of hand is really selling yourself short. Yeah, I, I would I would agree. I would agree. Um, I'll say this. Um, what can we, like, are there certain exceptions to that, you know, where, like, you'd say, like, oh, don't buy. The one thing that I would say, like, don't buy a Chinese reproduction because I've yet to see one that's I would consider to be, you know, quote-unquote, you know, super high quality will last you a long time is footwear. Um, yeah. when, and w- I, w- I would recommend buying uh, American-made or European-made boots. Um, and those those are going to come at a pretty penny. And you might be facing a, a decently long wait time. But uh, I still would recommend people to spend the money on those because I have yet to see out of China in my nine years of reenacting, going on 10, you know, a pair of solid boots that will last and last and last and you know if somebody has I'd, I'd i'd love to hear about them there is um there are vendors in pakistan that sell boots there's like a range of these things that go from frankly joke quality to i think pretty good um and of course now by pretty good i'm not saying that 
these boots are going to last a lifetime. Uh, and I'm not saying that they're indistinguishable from original boots. Uh, but if somebody needs something for one event a year or for a side impression or a spare pair of boots or loaner gear, you know, but I agree with you for, for my impression, I wear boots made in Germany. Yeah. And actually, Chris, didn't you have a pair of rather nice, uh, I think they were reproduction of World War One French boots that were made in Pakistan? They were. They, uh, I wore those basically as daily wear boots for a long time. And I remember, and they lasted, they were they were super good. But unfortunately, that company, I guess, never made, you know, German boots. So. I actually walked through the half sole. Incredible, you know, That's how, how Incredible. much wear I got out of it, and the upper remained solid. Yeah, I saw you climb, we climbed that mountain in, uh, right. in those things, you know? Like, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, what about ordering directly from China? What are the expectations when you are placing an order from a seller who is actually located in China? I have some sort of experience with that. Um, I recently ordered a uniform from Military Harbor, which is a company based out of China. And I would say that my experience was good. Um, I received the item in a sort of reasonable time frame i think like the shipping took like a month or something um you know between when i ordered it and when i got it so yeah um it's not that bad i think some people are a little freaked out by it you know like i i don't want to i mean i don't want to seem prejudiced but i mean i feel like you know, you're communicating with somebody who lives in Asia, who English isn't their first language. Like, are they going to be able to understand what you're telling them? And they, I, they are. They know what they're doing. And they're also pretty specific about the measurements that they want. Like, I've ordered uniforms from Military Harbor. I've ordered uniforms from uh, Gavin before. And they sort of sent me, like, a little chart um, showing, like, the measurements they wanted me to take. And there was always the caveat that, you know, if you're getting a custom uniform, uh, all sales are final. But also it's like, even with shipping, it's like under $150 for a tunic. Um, they, I think, have like a surcharge for ordering custom stuff. But still, it's relatively reasonably priced. And the time frame isn't that bad, especially compared to some of the bespoke European uh, vendors. Okay, so this is my take on uh, buying stuff direct from China. Basically, my thought about it for the most part is you are paying uh, an absurdly low amount of money for uh, a well-made item, like what you described, under $100 for a custom tailored jacket. At that price point, I think it's unreasonable to expect USA or Europe-type customer service. Yeah. Um, I, in my experience buying direct from China, you might get a tracking number. You might not. Um, sometimes you send the money and you get a nice email back with your order. And sometimes you don't even get that. Yeah. Sometimes you just cast your money into the void and then you wait four to six weeks and the item comes in the mail. And I, I guess I kind of expect that in a sense, if I'm, if I'm ordering something direct from China, um, obviously there are situations where that's like unacceptable for me. And in those cases, I try to buy from sellers based in the U S or Europe who offer a higher level of customer service, basically. Sure, sure, sure. 
It's my experience generally ordering from most of the big name suppliers in the United States that they ship they ship very promptly. Yeah, and you can choose what level of shipping you want. You can get you can pay the extra money and you can have the item tomorrow if you want. So something I wanted to touch on is, do you ever see something on a website that looks so cool? You know, maybe it's new, um, or you know, you just saw it on the website. It's an, like it it looks awesome. Um, and you really want to buy it, but then maybe your friend gets one and it's not so good, you know, or like you see one at an event or like even better, there's like a flea market, um, at an event or just like somewhere and you can see the item and it's, it's actually not that cool. Sure. I mean, this is one of the sort of, uh, pitfalls of buying reenactment gear, that we haven't even really touched on is that we, we just are starting proceeding almost from a matter of course that you are mail ordering this stuff Yeah, because the opportunities to buy these items from like a brick and mortar store, or even in a lot of cases from uh, an event or a flea market. I mean, it's, it's, they're few and far between. Sure. So most of the time when we're talking about buying reenactment gear, we're talking about a mail order transaction. Yeah. The only time I think I actually ever went to a brick-and-mortar store, was not even in America. Oh, did you go to the um, McFarthing Bowls? Or yes, whatever? yes, yes. What was that experience like? This is in... Uh, all right, just say where it so is. And... It's, uh, it was sort of on the Dutch-Netherlands... Uh, it was on the Dutch-Belgian uh, border. Uh, and they are in Belgium, but they're very close to uh, the, the, the Netherlands. And so we like went over the border, and it was like... You know, like a clothing store, but they had, you know, World War II uniforms. Uh, they had, you know, German and British, and actually kind of neat. They had some World War II Dutch ones, um, and so I, don't, I thought, I thought that was very interesting. But I've never actually seen an equivalent to that here in the states. Sure, that sounds really cool. Yeah, it was. Uh, thinking back on it, it was actually kind of a u- unique experience. There are so many traps that uh, you can fall into. I don't want to scare people off of buying reenactment gear. I mean, the overwhelming vast majority of times when I've gotten a box in the mail, when I open up, there's like joy and it's a good buy. Um, But I think it's worth saying that you, you can't always take it for granted that the photograph on the website shows the exact product that you're going to be buying. Um, you might, someone might show you something and say that it came from a vendor and you order the same widget from the same vendor and you get something totally different. Sure. Sometimes runs change, you know, sometimes a maker like, like does a nice run of something, but then like a later run is of an inferior quality and sometimes makers improve their runs. And so the earlier run is kind of crap, but then the later runs are improved. But maybe like that maker gets a bad rap because people didn't like the the early run, you know? And there's all sorts of folklore that surrounds these things. Like old Sturm is the best, I think is one, you know? And uh, a lot of it is just kind of crap. <laughs> sure. I mean, there's a vendor located in the United States that sells uh, high quality boots at this time, these boots are sturdy. Everybody that I've talked to that has bought these boots is really pleased with them. But there are people that bought boots from the same company 10 years ago, and they got imported Chinese boots 
which were sold at a much lower price. But those people are still going on and on saying, I bought a pair of boots from this vendor and they are trash. Sure. Not realizing that the boots that they bought and the boots that are being offered today have nothing in common. Yeah. They're yeah. from different manufacturers. And the, the point that you made about runs is so true. I mean, um, some vendors, it's people I think should understand that it's very rare that you're buying something directly from the craftsman who made it. There are such people in this hobby. There are people that make custom hats. There are people that make custom leather gear or custom uniforms even. And you are talking to the guy who's going to be operating the sewing machine. But in most cases, particularly with the larger vendors who offer a wide range of items, you're basically dealing with a reseller and they get items made for them and maybe they make some items and they may be reselling items that are also sold by a range of other vendors so you know i can't i can't tell you how many times i've seen on the internet people are debating whether they should order something from vendor x or vendor y and it is the exact same item from the same manufacturer in reality Mm, mm, mm. and then so you've got a vendor who is a reseller and they are selling uh, canteen cups say they run out of canteen cups it's time to order new canteen cups but the previous manufacturer uh, or where they got them from before the wholesaler they don't have any in stock so they buy another batch of canteen cups from another source another manufacturer and maybe they update the photograph on the website but or maybe their attitude is a canteen cup is a canteen cup <laughs> and and in everything in reenacting, like a canteen cup is not a canteen cup. It could be uh, that you like the maker mark on one versus another, or the way that the rim is rolled, or the way that the handles are affixed, or the yeah. shape or size of the rivets, or the you know the texture of the paint, or whatever it is. These things can vary, and these variables can be meaningful to an individual. Yeah, I I, I strongly identify with that. Um, this sort of cycles back to another point, but something that I wanted to say was actually rather humbling to me was buying something that I thought was bespoke and then realizing that it came from China. Sure. Um, like I remember I have those Kokomoma pouches, um, but I actually bought them from a prominent vendor, um, and they weren't listed as having been made in China. And so I thought that they were, you know, maybe made in America or Germany. And then finding out that, you know, these things that, you know, were made in, you know, these things were actually made in China and they're great. Uh, it it kind of took me down a peg um, in my way of thinking. Some vendors are very clear about whether they're offering an imported product or something that is made in the USA or something that is made in their workshop. But not all vendors are so transparent and not all vendors in the past have been as transparent. I remember uh, the very first reproduction Tornister backpack that I was aware of made anywhere was offered in the USA by Shipper Fabrique. I remember that. I remember that because I got one too. They... Uh, this may have been my projection or, you know, I might have failed to correctly read between the lines and I'm not making by any means, I'm not making the claim that these things were actually like misrepresented deliberately, but looking at the sales pitch, 
I wrongly assumed that these were made by Shipafabrik. So as I waited, I pre-ordered this item. And as I waited, I thought that the wait time was because they were crafting these things one at a time in a, in a workshop wherever they were. But in reality, they were waiting for their order to come from India where these things were made. I, I made the same sort of fallacy. Um, and I actually recall, I think it was the price point that made me think that these things were made in America. Because these things cost, um, it was like, it, it was between two and $300 at the time that I, I ordered. I might even have spent $350 wow. on that pack. I believe I spent like 280 something, you yeah, know? Yeah, maybe that was more like, like that. I can't remember exactly. Yeah, but I, that's a tremendous amount of money. It is. So you might assume that you're paying for a USA. And yeah. look, when I got the pack, I was thrilled. The build quality was outstanding. Yeah. I traveled all over with that pack, and I still use it for stuff. I mean, I love it. I've put a I lot, a lot mine. of miles. On yeah, it. I travel. I, I traveled to Europe in that. You know, I've traveled across the country in that. You know, but you can buy that same pack now, made by the same manufacturer, sold by a different seller for a fraction of the prices yeah. we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So um, things to think about, I suppose. And uh, so, I guess. Um, just like kind of looking at the big picture, you know, you have, you're looking at the website, you, you think that the thing that you're ordering is the thing that you're going to get. Um, what, what are kind of some resources that you can use to maybe check and make sure that this is a vendor that's got a good reputation? If it's somebody that you're not familiar with, I mean, what, how do you make sure that you're not running into a bad deal? I mean, this First of all, um, ask around, you know, like, even if like, as we talked about at the beginning, even if like, your unit, their sort of kit list might have some flaws in it, just like, ask other reenactors. Um, obviously, reenactors aren't infallible. And I feel like some vendors, you know, get a lot of hype that's maybe they're they don't really deserve. Generally speaking, if people like a product, you know, for its price point and quality, they will tell you that, you know, versus, you know, somebody who likes something because it's like a Gucci gang uniform, you know, you can usually tell, you know, somebody says, oh, I like this thing. It's nice quality um, and uh, customer service is good versus like, oh, yeah, you know, it's made with like all these fancy materials and such. Sure. Um, yeah, asking around, talking to other reenactors is, I think, really valuable. Yeah. I value the input of other guys in my group. The information that you might find in Facebook discussion groups could be a mixed bag. But um, I'll tell you what, if you post on there, uh, what do you guys think about the belt buckle sold by such and such a vendor? And you've got 20 people commenting saying that guy stole my money. That's not someone that you want to do business yeah, with. I strongly agree. Most of the time you can buy with confidence from reenactment vendors. You know, people yeah. that burn their usually when a vendor starts burning people, they're not gonna they're not gonna be around for very long. There are some rare exceptions to this. Yeah. And I'm not gonna name names. <laughs> I think we all know who we're, I think I know who you're talking about too. Yeah. You know. <laughs> um, if you are into historical World War II reenacting for any length of time, you're gonna hear a discussion of suppliers and you're gonna hear kind of the good, the bad and the ugly. Yeah, about certain it. ones are more reliable than others, perhaps, you know. Yeah. Um and then it's basically uh a matter of 
getting the thing in the mail, opening it up, inspecting it, trying it on, making it sure it fits. Um, look, mistakes happen. Yeah. I've, I've had this happen before where something wasn't in the box and I had to contact the vendor. And fortunately, I've never had a situation where I spent money on something from a legitimate vendor and I didn't get it. Yeah, I mean, also, I think um, website design, there's something to be said for that, you know? Like, if if they have, like, a nice-looking website with, like, a lot of detailed photographs, um, maybe they're a good vendor to buy from, you know? Well, that's uh, that's true. I do have a... Uh, my, my, like, rubber stamp website, entrenches.com, is not the most uh, best website ever, and you can buy stuff from me. Shameless plug there, Chris. But, uh, <laughs> no, I've, uh, I, I saw recently this uh, crazy situation that happened. So there are scam websites that originate in other countries. Mm. I think they originate in China or whatever. Mm. They take photographs from other websites and list them as if they're products that you can buy from them, usually at a much, much lower price. And... Um, you buy them, and then maybe you get some kind of costume quality joke shop representation of the item that you ordered, <laughs> or perhaps more often, you don't actually get anything at all. <laughs> and this happened recently with Tornisters that we were talking about. Really? Yeah, I, there I, was a uh, somebody posted, and they were like, This website is selling a nice reproduction of the Tornister for 50 bucks. Mm. And the photograph that they were using was like a stock photograph of the Tornister pack sold by IMA and Zip. And I looked at the website and I looked at all the other stuff that they were selling. And it was just a totally random arrangement of like backpacks. It was the only World War II item on there. Everything else was just some kind of hiking rucksack or sport pack of some kind. And I, I com someone had posted about this on Facebook and I commented and I said, that's a scam. And a couple of people said, well, you know, I paid with my credit card. And if I don't get anything, then I will be uh, filing a complaint and I can get my money back. And none of those people got a, got anything in the mail. Well, so it goes. Although I will say this. Um, sometimes you can buy reenactment stuff from non-reenactment vendors. Like, remember, what, so there's this company called Sportsman's Guide. And they sell, like, a lot of surplus stuff. But... I remember they had uh, Sturm tunics and greatcoats. Uh, I think they still might. They still might. They sell they sell Zeltbonds and stuff. Yeah, There's and some reenactment gear from this general outdoor uh, retailer place. Yeah, and I remember we were able to. I th they must have not updated the prices or something because I think you and I got Sturm tunics, which on most other websites are like over a hundred dollars for sixty dollars. Yeah, we got those yeah. from a from a different but similar vendor. I thought it was Sportsman's Guide. It was no. a place that was like keep shooting. Oh, that's right. And they that's they right. sold out of them and didn't restock. Yeah. So they must have come across some kind of like I don't know, they bought out a lot or yeah. you know, they bought out the contents of some previous reseller's inventory or something. I don't know, but yeah, yeah there were deals out there. Sometimes just because the price is really low doesn't mean it doesn't necessarily mean it's too good to be true. Yeah. Often that's the case, but that's not always the case. Yeah, and but that said, I don't know if I'd recommend that to a new person because I don't want that person to get burned and then maybe not want to come back. Like that's sort of like a when you've moved beyond the beginner, if you will. You know, when you're willing to sort of roll some dice. Yeah, we bought those things and we already had uniforms. Yeah. I wouldn't tell somebody to order from some weird vendor that they haven't heard of before to get their first uniform. Yeah. I would encourage people to stick to. Um, the basics and yeah. you know look uh i 
I like to buy from USA sellers when I can because international shipping has become insane. Frankly. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's ever going to go back to pre-pandemic levels of reliability or shipping speed. And the last time I ordered reenactment stuff from Germany, I mean, it just took months and months and I didn't have a tracking number. And of course, when you wait months, you go past the window where you could get a refund through PayPal if you didn't get it. And so I'm just like, I either have lost all my money and eventually it did come. Yeah. Um, and I support a lot of different vendors as much as I can. And there are vendors like Fairleck Kopf that are located in Europe that I absolutely love to buy from. But when I do buy from them, I know that the shipping speed, it can be totally unpredictable. It can be totally variable. Yeah. You know, I see these people sometimes, um, people who are new to the hobby, maybe they're young people on the internet saying, listen, I ordered something from a vendor in France and it's been three weeks and I haven't gotten it. What should I do? And it's like, well, you should probably wait two or three more weeks before you even start worrying about it. Yeah. What's your experience with losing stuff in the mail? I mean, I think I've had a few items lost in the mail over time, but, uh. I've, so I, in addition to reenacting, I collect original World War II stuff, and that has basically entailed getting some unknown number of hundreds of packages from Europe over a span of over 20 years. And there have been things that were shipped that I never got. Look, I could buy it from a dealer and have it shipped FedEx overnight and pay $200 for shipping, and that thing would get a tracking number, and I would have it 12 hours later. But most of the time, what I'm talking about here are small items that were sent without a tracking number, something even that might have been sent with postage stamps, even Mm -hmm. in some cases. Mm -hmm. And there's no tracking. There's no accountability. The the seller says that they shipped it. I believe that they shipped it, but it never arrives. This happened to me with a a book that I bought on eBay relatively recently, an original book that I bought from uh, the United Kingdom. And I've been in touch with the seller and the seller says, listen, I shipped it and maybe someday it'll arrive, but it never did. It's been probably a year. Um, Sure. I don't think it's going to arrive. But look, if you order from a company, and that's what we're really talking about here is not order, not buying stuff on the secondary market so much, but ordering directly from vendors, whether they're manufacturers or resellers. If you order from one of these companies and your stuff gets lost in the mail, they're going to replace it. They have insurance, the packages are insured, or they have their own insurance or whatever it's going to be. You talk about the secondary market. Do you want to touch on that at all? The sort of Facebook marketplace? Yeah. As of the time of recording, I think Facebook is still the best place to, that I know of to buy used gear. I agree. Um, I agree. And actually, I mean, I, as you know, I have sort of my burgeoning side business. Um, I've had great success selling things on sort of reenactment kit on Facebook Marketplace. That said, it has its pitfalls. Like, you have to censor sort of all political insignia. Um, also, you can't sell knives. Um software can basically detect weapons and they will flag your posts and, you know, possibly kick you off or bad things will happen. You won't be able to sell anymore. Sure. It's not ideal for selling. And I think it's not ideal for for buying either because you're not buying from a company. You're buying from a private person and that person may uh, be a scammer. You know, let's be honest. That's, that's, I have bought, um, 
I think it's probably not an exaggeration for me to say I've bought hundreds of things from Facebook, yeah. sellers, from groups, and I have never had anything not come. But there are bad apples out there. Yeah. And I mean, I pride myself on, you know, shipping promptly, giving tracking numbers, um, knock on wood, but I think I have a pretty spotless reputation as a seller and I intend to keep that up. But that said, it's kind of a crapshoot sometimes, you know? You can kind of look at somebody's profile and look at their posts in a group and get a sense of, okay, is this person like a, a real part of this community or is this someone who made a fake profile and is using a photograph of an item that they found on the internet in order to make a quick yeah. buck? It's not surefire, but it's it's, it's a way. Right, because so, somebody theoretically could be out there right now with a, a an entire tractor trailer load of the most awesome reenactment gear ever, and he's never used. He's on day one of using Facebook, and he's listing the stuff. Yeah. That's totally possible. But yeah. you know, use some due diligence. I mean, uh, if someone is at, is forcing you to pay with a method like Cash App or I guess Venmo, where you have no recourse, there's mm. no there's no way to file a claim with some of these providers and you know that's that's a reason to be alarmed you know i will ask people sometimes to send me money um via friends and family because i want to avoid the fee and now yeah. there's also maybe tax stuff that might be coming into play well my line always is uh kindly send as friends or tack on an additional five percent to compensate for the fee that's reasonable i'll do that sometimes on larger items especially yeah. uh, i ask for four percent to cover the fees yeah. another thing that i'll do is i'll say um this is the amount this is the amount for shipping this is the total here's my address for paypal and uh if you don't mind i would appreciate it if you'd send it friends and family and then it's up to them if they don't trust me then I'll take take it on the chin for something that might be a twenty dollar item or whatever. That's reasonable. That's a reasonable approach. But I, I find that when I do that, most people do send it as a friends and family payment because um, they feel comfortable that I have a reputation and a presence in the marketplace that I'm not going to squander over the twenty dollars. Exactly. Exactly. What were some of the things? Thinking back, like experiences that you had mail ordering reenactment kit that were great. Is there anything that stands out where you just placed an order with something, you were blown away by the customer service and then you got the item and it was awesome? Nothing really stands out in my mind. In the vast piles and mountains. In the vast piles and mounds, you know, like it's just like I saw the thing, you know, I wanted it. Um, like some of the U.S. vendors are pretty good. Like I remember the first time that like, I'm actually embarrassed to say this, but the first time I think I actually like ordered online with a credit card was like a reenactment thing, you know? That's cool. Like I was 16 years old and like, I was like, how does this work? And so I think I called like at the front and like the lady like took my credit card number, which is like so archaic sounding now, you know, but sure. like you can still do it that way in a pinch. And I was like, hi, uh, I like want to buy this item. Like this is the uh, stock number. Like uh, how do I pay? Because <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd like just gotten some sort of like a bank card because I was like a high school student. Awesome. Yeah. The overwhelming vast majority of times when I open up that box and there's some new thing in there for reenactment, it's awesome. There are certain things that you just can't grasp from looking at something on a computer yeah. screen. And although that can cut both ways, like leather quality, right? 
you can't really. I'm looking at a picture of something that looks like a black square. Yeah. What is this telling me about how thick this is or how durable it is or how much it is or isn't like a real one? I'll say this. With the exception of the Kukumomo ammo pouches, which are awesome, generally I try to buy American or European for something like belts. Uh, that said, I haven't really had to buy like a new belt for reenacting uh, for years, you know? And uh, the one that I use now, it's like European made, but I got it secondhand at like a guy at an event for like 30 bucks or something, you know, or like 20 bucks. It wasn't that much money. I got a belt from China years ago. I really liked it, um, but it didn't last that long because it yeah. became really floppy. Now, I don't know if I might actually have over oiled it. That was because that, yeah. that, prior to that time, I never used leather oil. And then I'm like, this oil, this is awesome. That's I'm maybe just gonna... a topic for a different day. But I also, I also used to oil the crap out of all my leather gear. And I think that was wrong. Yeah. Um, I think that was patently wrong. And I think I actually sort of decreased the service life of my stuff. Sure. Yeah. So that might have been on me. But... I, I like to buy reenactment stuff. I mean, I know I've discussed gear yeah. on this podcast countless times, and I, I do enjoy doing it. Something I did actually want to talk to, and Chris, you saw more of this in your tenure as a reenactor, uh, but different generations of gear. Um, so it's my understanding um, that when reenacting got started up in like the 1970s, you know, People wore original uniforms because you know nobody was repro- nobody was reproducing them, and then yeah, that was the first phase yeah. was all original stuff. Yeah. And then when did Yanka? No, even before Yanka was the era of conversions. Oh, okay, yeah. So, so people yeah. would convert originally, prior even to the availability of Swedish or Swiss tunics that were like like Swedish conversion tunics. In the 90s, were almost standard yeah. in a lot of groups. But even prior, I guess, to the availability of the Swedish surplus, that people used to convert United States Marine Corps four-pocket dressing. Yeah. Um, and then, then there were Swedish conversions, and then there was Yanka. Probably in the 1980s, they started. Yeah. A, a company made, based in Germany that was selling uh, reproductions, maybe the... But probably they yeah. were the first. And I think that they're still around uh, to like a, to some degree. I mean, you can still buy stuff from Bill Biro sure. um, through through them. But uh, yeah, then what was the first uh, American made? Uh, New Columbia? I believe it was New Columbia. Yeah. And uh, New Columbia, I think, sold reproduction Civil War uniforms and they expanded into World War II stuff. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize uh, the Civil War connection. And they and, were super expensive. Yeah. All of these reproduction tunics that we're talking about in these early days were wildly expensive. And it's funny standards. because, I mean, you look at a New Columbia and there's some definite flaws in it. I mean, the thing that sticks out the most to me is uh, the, uh, the the belt, the like the belt, the belt loop uh, holes, basically. They're like flat slits that are reinforced instead of basically round They didn't holes. have the machine that made the yeah, round they eyelets. Did, they didn't have the machine. And so they just did them as like reinforced flat slits. And then, um, unfortunately, Joe, I believe his name was Joe Corvey from New Columbia, uh, he went blind. Uh, no. And the patterns were sold to at the front. Interesting. And Lost Battalion started reproducing uniforms. Yeah. This is in the late 1990s. 
and SM Wholesale was making uniforms. Yep. So you had this three manufacturers based in the United States and one in Germany that were cranking out reproduction uniforms for reenactors. When do you think that reproductions kind of phased out uh, the sort of, you know, Marine Corps and Swedish conversions, like late 90s? When I got started in 2000, it was like very common to be like, hey, we're a hardcore authentic unit. We don't allow Swedish conversions. And the reason why that rhetoric had value was because there were a lot of units that did allow Swedish conversions. But very quickly that changed. Yeah, it's funny. I think, you know, the unit that I joined, the first unit that I ever joined, they like, I went to one event and I borrowed loner gear and like the, the, the loner tunic I borrowed was a Swedish conversion. But I don't think I ever saw anybody walking around at like 2012, 2013 wearing a Swedish conversion. By that time, Chinese tunics had come on the scene, which brings us conveniently to Chinese tunics. Sure, which was the, the final phase that yeah. we're in now. Yeah. Where you've got the mass production of these things. There have been a variety of manufacturers over time. Now, you've talked a little bit about this before. I don't know about it in the podcast, but what was the first Chinese tunic that you ever saw, Chris? The first Chinese tunic that I ever saw was probably around 2003 or 2002 or something. Was it like a Hong Kong key? It was, it was something like a Hong Kong Keith. Or Hong Kong Keith or a spearhead or something yeah. or some some forerunner to these things. It was terrible. It was really mm. terrible. It was laughable. And of course, a very short time after that, Sturm tunics appeared, which were billed as being made in Germany, but were not. Yeah. They were made in China and they, people didn't find that out until later. Yeah. Uh, but there was, I think, uh, an initial negativity towards the Chinese made stuff because it was trash. Sure. And of course, China, the Chinese manufacturers have vastly stepped up their game. Well, I feel like that was still, that sort of stigma was still kicking around even like 10 years into the hobby, you know, like some of the older, uh, some of the sort of old guard reenactors kind of, they had Yonka or Lost Battalion uniforms that they'd been wearing, you know, since probably the, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, and they'd seen the bad Chinese reproductions and they were, you know, still fielding you know in like 2010 to 2015 and you know they're just like yeah chinese uniforms are trash well that's that's one of kind of many fallacies you know another one that i've seen being um i wear someone might say i wear post-war german military jack boots and they're better than the reproductions because they're real military jack boots or whatever yeah yeah Um, i've heard that one too i took a panther store m42 feldbluse and this is in an era when boiling your uniforms was actually the fad. And I boiled this uniform into nothing, and it reduced itself into a, um, a woolen soup. It's really different to do reenactment in France, Italy, or even England, because there are countries that suffered from the war. In Switzerland, people are quite open, and I never got any negative reaction. There was a time where I thought, oh man, we're going to really be struggling with recruits this year. But I don't know if it's because people were sitting at home twiddling their thumbs because of COVID. But our recruitment actually has astronomically risen. The Reenactors Corner, bringing history to life. We have strayed kind of far from our buying stuff uh, subject. So thank you listeners for uh, going into the weeds with us on this one. Thank you all. Forgive us. 
Um, and on that note, we are running out of time. Before I go, I did want to say a special thank you to everyone who supports the podcast via Patreon. Uh, without you guys, we wouldn't be able to keep doing this stuff. So thank you very much for your kind and generous support. And on that note, Ben, it's been great talking to you. Thank you, Chris. It's been great being here. And to everybody out there, I'll see you in the field. We love hearing what you think about the podcast. So why not let us know by reaching out in all the usual places, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search for The Reenactors Corner and you'll find us there. And maybe think about supporting us via Patreon. No matter how big or small, your monthly donations make a huge difference. And as ever, thanks to Mike, a.k.a. Retro Man, for editing the podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and will join us here again at The Reenactors Corner. Reenactors Corner.